Good morning. Please turn with me in God's Word to Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so now that those who are of faith, those are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Thus concludes the reading of God's Word. May He be pleased to write it on our hearts. For both... Martin Luther and John Bunyan, the realization of the imputed righteousness of Christ was the greatest life-changing moment they ever had. Luther said it was like entering a paradise of peace with God. For Bunyan, it was the end of years, as he described it, a spiritual torture of worry and constant uncertainty. And all of us, I believe, this morning would like to know that kind of peace that our acceptance and approval before God is a certainty based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul writes, he tells me that one of the goals of my ministry as an elder here at Grace Bible Church should be that You are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And I want you to be stable and mature. I want you to be firm in the faith and have a strong foundation. In particular, I want you to know and understand the doctrine of the imputation of God's righteousness in Christ. You know, an imputation... That's an unusual word today. We don't often talk about that. But it's an important word that we need to understand it as followers of Christ. And You know, that word, imputation, has been understood for centuries to describe the truth that God imputes His righteousness to us through faith. 
because of Christ's life and his perfect obedience. And it's a glorious truth. And I promise you that it will indeed change your life if you can grasp it and apply it to your understanding and thinking, just as Luther and Bunyan did. And imputation, that's different than impartation. And hang with me here. <laughs> you know, God does impart to us gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. He gives those to us. He imparts those. He imparts the gift of saving faith. He grants repentance. And those things are indeed ours. But of all that gracious impartation through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's built on the imputation. That is the work of God outside of you and me. It's God's own righteousness, not imparted, but it's imputed to us. And I want to explain that this morning. And imputation has the basic meaning of thinking we're considering. Uh, Another meaning is seen in a business or an accounting context where it is to credit. It is to reckon or to calculate. However, the main uses that we were find is when someone thinks or considers. Reformed theologian Charles Hodge, he writes this about imputation. In the judicial and theological sense of the word, to impute is to attribute anything, he says, to a person or persons upon adequate grounds as the judicial or meritorious reason of reward or punishment. So far as the meaning of the word is concerned, it makes no difference whether the thing imputed be sin or righteousness, whether it is our own personally or the sin or righteousness of another. Now, this is important to get a hold of this. So according to Hodge and what he's saying, God can lay or charge or reckon to our account either righteousness or sin. And God's thought makes it so, makes it a reality for you and me. And when God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it actually belongs to us. Now again, this when this light clicks on, the light bulb goes on, this, this will be life-changing. A more succinct definition is offered by Wayne Grudem, where Grudem says to impute is to think, that word again, think, of as belonging to someone, and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Christ's righteousness, His righteousness as belonging to you and me. So God relates to us on that basis that we are righteous based on the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to our account. And when God thinks of us as righteous in Christ, His righteousness actually belongs to us in God's sight. Therefore, what God thinks and how God sees it is what really matters. Think of Isaiah 55. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts... As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our personal feelings of righteousness one day and unrighteousness the next, those don't really matter. And when you think about it, that's, that's a real blessing. 
because everything flows from God through Christ. Everything is based on the work of the Godhead, the Trinity. So uh, redemption is accomplished and applied. And it doesn't depend on us. Therefore, we are secure in our salvation based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. That ought to be a great relief to every one of us this morning when you actually and honestly examine your own life and the struggles that you have. One day you feel kind of righteous, the next day you don't. That's not what matters according to the Word of God. Now, let's look at some scriptural support for this imputed righteousness to get this across so we can grasp it and see it actually manifested in people's lives that are just like we are. Recall in Genesis chapter 12, there Moses is writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God called Abram. His name was later changed to Abraham. You remember that back in Genesis chapter 17. And he was told by God to go to a land that the Lord would show him, which turned out to be Canaan. Well, God then makes a covenant of promise. Abraham didn't have any children. And Abraham's an old man. And he promised God, said, Abram, I'm going to give you a son. And Genesis chapter 15 records all this for us. And then in Genesis 15 verse 6, something very important. Abram believed the Lord. And God credited, there's that term, credited to him, to Abram, as what? Righteousness. This is foundational. Abram did not work to achieve his righteousness. God thought of Abraham as righteous. Now, this is an important point. This credit that God gave of righteousness to Abram's account took place before he was ever circumcised in the flesh. Also, this gift given to Abraham, that was bestowed on him 400 plus years before the law of Moses was given on Mount Sinai. And when we look and remember the life of Abram, perhaps you can see some of yourself in him. Remember, he misled the Pharaoh earlier, which broke God's moral law. Misled is just nothing more than a euphemism, for he lied to him. And later, again, Abram misled King Abimelech and told him that Sarah was his sister, which was only half true, partial truth. And the point here is this gift of righteousness that God credited to Abram's account was not based on Abram's own character or righteousness. Just like our righteousness is not based on your character or your own personal righteousness. It's not even based on the good or bad that Abram had done or you or I had done. It's based on faith and God's grace. In granting imputed righteousness. Think of Paul of how he writes 
in the book of Romans chapter 4. Notice what Paul writes. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, which he wasn't, he had something to boast about. God, look at me. <laughs> look what I've done. Now reward me. But the Spirit writing there, and what Paul says, but he, had, he couldn't boast before God. What does the Scripture say? Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, Paul says, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but they're a duty, they're an obligation. You work for somebody, or you employ somebody, they do the labor and the work, you're obligated to pay them. And Paul's saying this is not how God dealt with Abraham or how he deals with you or me. And he says, however, to the man who does not work, but trust, that is, believes. He trusts God and what he says in his promises. It is this kind of God, our God, the living God, the true God who justifies the wicked. And the scripture says his faith is credited to him as righteousness, not his works. And I know there's some of you out there this morning that are working for your righteousness. I've been there before. <laughs> you know, Paul observes from Genesis that both Abraham's and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead. They were old. They were past that point in life of childbearing. But God renewed, he rejuvenated their bodies with that almighty power, that power that resurrected Christ from the dead. He can not only promise, and these are promises from a God that cannot lie, the scripture says. It's not part of his character. It's not his attributes. He cannot lie. He's got the power to carry out those promises. And no man can thwart the promises of God. <coughs> Romans 4, Paul continues on. Yet he, Abraham, it says he didn't waver. He wasn't tossed to and fro through unbelief regarding the promises of God. He heard God speak. He heard the promise. And by God's grace, he believed it. And he was strengthened in his face. And he gave glory to God, it says, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And that hits each of us this morning. Do we really believe that? Are we fully persuaded that God can do what he's promised? Does he have the power to do that? And Paul goes and said, this is why it was credited to him, to Abraham as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, not just isolated to Abraham, but for also for us, he says, for you and me. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who what? Who believe in him, in Christ who raised, or in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was resurrected on the third day. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, Paul writes in Romans 4. And that is God credits us with righteousness regardless, or even though we don't feel or act righteous. That's, that's hard to grasp by most people. 
I lose a lot of folks right there. (laughs) Nonetheless, God imputes it to us by faith alone. Regarding it as ours, and therefore it is ours according to the word of God. That's the difference between living by faith and living by your feelings and emotions. And we all know those are up and down, good and bad, good days, bad days. God thinks of us as righteous in Christ, and therefore that righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, actually belongs to us. We are righteous in His sight. And again, it's, it's, it's how God sees us that matters. Our own pride can get in the way of how we see ourselves. And according to the scripture, our hearts are desperately wicked. We don't even understand that. We don't understand all our motives. So we need to learn to trust what God says. And he says we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Think of in the book of Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Christ will be united with his glorified and spotless bride. If you notice there and you pay close attention, you you don't pick your own clothes to wear to the wedding feast. Those are provided for you. And those robes are the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees you, he sees you clothed in that righteousness of his son. At what we're all looking forward to, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Well, in Galatians 3, as we saw, you know, Paul further writes on this faith of of Abraham. And he says, consider Abraham. He believed God. He trusted God. And it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Again, Paul's writing this. Understand then, he says, that those who believe, believers, they are the true children of Abraham. And the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's how they were going to be saved, just like the Jews, by faith. And it says, and God announced the gospel, the good news in advance to Abraham. (laughs) He said, all nations will be blessed through you. Of the, the promise of the coming Messiah. They were looking forward. We look back now. They were saved under the old covenant or during that time just like they are today. Imputed righteousness through faith in Christ. So then Paul writes, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Recall that Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. Remember, he was the result of works of the flesh. Isaac was the child of promise, promise through Sarah, not Hagar. And you know, as we go through Galatians, that those were representations of the covenant. And at one point there, he told to cast out the bondwoman. But when he says nations will be blessed, that speaks of us, if you will, the Gentiles. When the Gentiles have the same faith 
as Abraham, they too are included in the promise of righteousness or justification, which is really just a legal declaration that we are righteous in Christ and we do not bear our sin. (laughs) We're justified in God's court of law, if you will. So in Galatians 3, 9, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And again, just to clarify, Gentiles, you and me, for the most part, are not biologically the offspring of Abraham. But we are considered as having that same status by imputation. And God considers that Gentiles are Abraham's offspring by their faith, by believing in the promises of Christ. You know, in Paul's day, some Jews converted to Christ, just like Paul did. And these Jews, they looked around at the Gentile converts that were being brought into the church, and they concluded, hey, you guys need to keep certain portions of the Mosaic law in order to be righteous, particularly circumcision. You guys, you guys really need to get circumcised which was the sign or seal of being part of the people of God under the Old Covenant. However, Paul concluded that Abraham was credited with righteousness by faith before circumcision was ever commanded. And Paul writes, in this blessedness, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised, the Jews and Gentiles. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances, he asked, was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Or before? And Paul says it was not after, it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, Abraham, he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. This is right out of the scripture, Romans 4. And he, Abraham, is also the father of the circumcised, the Jews, if you will, who are not, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had been before he was circumcised. I know that can kind of get confusing, but the fact is, before these outward signs were ever done, he was circumcised in his heart, just like you and I are. That is, righteousness by faith was imputed or credited before circumcision. And therefore, the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised in order to be credited with righteousness. They didn't have to keep an aspect of the law. Abraham is the father both of the circumcised who believe in Christ, the Messianic Jews, if you will, and the uncircumcised who believe in Christ, the Gentile Christians. And this 
is what I see are the one true family of God, the church, the true Israel. And, of course, Romans 9, 10, and 11 go into great detail on all that. And here's the point for you and I this morning. It is those who are circumcised in the heart who belong to God, God's people, the children of God. Circumcision has been imputed by faith. One doesn't need to be circumcised physically. Colossians chapter 2, again, Paul writes, In him also you were circumcised, note, with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, he says, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. It's God's working. You have faith in what God is doing. Who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And your hearts were uncircumcised. And then it says, God made alive together with him Heaven forgiving us all our trespasses. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been made righteous. And again, perhaps Paul is thinking in his mind, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the scripture says, and this is the thinking of the Jews at the time, and at Paul's time, and, and there's people today. There might be people in this room that are thinking this. If we are careful to obey All this law, the law that was given to them, before the Lord our God, as he has commanded them. That will be our righteousness of keeping the law. I'm going to earn and gain my righteousness through keeping of the law. And obedience to that Mosaic law was the ancient Israel's Israelites' righteousness as far as they thought and understood and how they lived their lives. But not so for us as believers in Christ. And Paul would argue, and I would argue this morning, and I try to persuade you that Christ is our righteousness. He alone. Our sin, our guilt, our shame... Those were imputed to Christ. (laughs) He bore our sin on the cross. And we find forgiveness because He paid the debt we couldn't pay. And that's that's good news (laughs) in itself. However, we need something more than that. As glorious as that is, we need God's gift of righteousness. But how do I get that? And if you're here this morning and you're pondering that question and it's disturbing you, what must I do to be righteous? Do I, do I need to work for it? What do I need to do? Because we can never measure up to God's holiness and perfection. We sin daily. Part of the purpose of the law to expose that sin and show us that we cannot do it through works of the flesh. Remember, if you fail at one point, you failed at all of them. 
And it's just not 10 of them, it was 600 of them. You know, they say today, even with the abundance of laws in our own country, that the average American commits three felonies a day. Have you ever removed one of those tags from your mattress under penalty? (laughs) Again, the law brings out the sin because it makes me want to run in there and get the scissors and cut it off. Just like, you know, don't walk on the grass. The first thing I want to do is walk on the grass. Or don't trust that. Well, what do you got in there? But that's what the law does. It brings that out. It it did that with covenants. It made me covet. Well, Christ took the penalty of our law breaking. Every one of us has broken God's law. Every one of us has sinned. The scripture is very clear on that. Scripture goes on and says, if you say you don't have any sin, you're deceiving yourself and you're a liar. But if we confess that sin, God is justful in faith, faithful to remove that and forgive us of that. So Christ has taken the penalty of our law breaking on himself. He has fulfilled the demands of the law, which is good and righteous, that we can never do. The purpose of that law was to point us to Christ, expose our sinfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, that is God, made Him, Christ Jesus, His Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it says here, He knew no sin. He never sinned. He was perfect. He made Him who know no sin to be sin on our behalf. So what? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And here we have a double imputation. God imputes our sin to Christ who know no sin, who is perfect and spotless and holy. God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. And God imputed his righteousness to each of us this morning that believe through faith to those who had no righteousness of our own. And the scripture is very clear. All your righteous works are as filthy rags in my nostrils. (laughs) And without faith, it's impossible to please God, the scripture also tells us. And we get this righteousness not because our faith is righteous, but because we are united with Christ. We are in Christ. That description is given in Scripture of a Christian, a man who is in Christ. I knew a man who is in Christ. Faith is what unites us with Christ. So does that mean that my faith and your faith itself is a righteousness that we perform? Many within the church at large believe that. And somehow, because of our faith, God counts that as good enough to be our righteousness. It's our contribution of righteousness and our justification. God takes your faith. He counts that as being righteous. That's not what I believe the scripture says. I think our justification is something very different. 
It's not that God's saying any righteousness is in you or me, but his crediting to me the righteousness of his own son through faith. There's where my righteousness is. There's how I stand before and enter before the throne of grace and how I'm going to stand before the judgment God of our bar of God someday. Every man is going to be appointed to do that, to die and face judgment. And when we face judgment, our judge is our justifier. We have his imputed righteousness. And the good news is when God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, God considers it as belonging to us, and it does. That's what we plead. Even though we haven't done any works of righteousness in ourselves that could ever, ever merit God's grace and mercy or earn God's free gift of righteousness, there's nothing you can do. The only thing, you, if you want to look at it this way, the only thing is you contribute is your is you're a sinner and you've broken the law of God. Matter of fact, the natural mind and natural man hates God. There's none that seeketh after God. It's all of God's grace. As Jonah proclaimed, salvation is of the Lord. Our new legal status before God is bestowed on us because of what Christ has done. God declaring us righteous and his imputing righteousness to us depends on him and his thoughts alone. It's his thinking or imputing depends on his grace and love for his own son. Therefore, the effectiveness, efficacy, that is getting the job done. That was based on Christ's life and death. Christ is the unshakable bedrock of our hope. He's the solid rock on which we stand. Not you or me. Not myself. And because of that, in the power of God, now we are secure because we don't depend on our own faith even to save us. But we depend solely on the person and work of Christ. That's living by faith. That's trusting in the promises of God. And it's true. Believe me, and I, I struggle with this maybe more than most of you. My faith wavers and fluctuates at times. I'm easily discouraged. But God's purposes and promises don't do that. The scripture says, you thought of me like you think of yourself. He's not like that. And think about this. Is your legal standing with God as being righteous based on what you have done or what Jesus has done? Where are you putting your hope and trust? The Almighty imputes or credits Christ's righteousness to us as a free and once for all gift. And listen to this, that that status is not sustained by my faith. I'd be in a world of hurt if it was, but it's not. Because my faith could be weak one day and strong the next. Rather, that status is sustained by God's grace and love and the mercy that he's shown to pitiful, helpless sinners like you and me. 
That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's his love for his son. And then his love for us. That he's loved us eternally before the foundations of the world. Therefore, here's hope. We're held firmly secure in his hands. It's not how strongly I can hold on to him. He's holding on to me. And I can argue that right from Scripture. I can think of John 6 where Jesus said, All that the Father has given me. These sheep out there, I am the good shepherd. They hear my voice and they will follow me. All that the Father has given me for the foundations of the world. His people to glorify Him in eternity. They will come to me. And Jesus said, I will lose none of them. I will raise them up the last day. They will be resurrected by the same power that resurrected me from the grave. Think of John 10. He's not going to lose one of his sheep. He's the good shepherd. He said, no one can pluck them out of my hand. And not only that, no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. So when your faith is weak and you feel like you're not holding on, trust in God, He's holding you. The Almighty created everything that you see. In the power of just looking at the sun, you can feel it this time of year out there. He made that. And He can keep you and He can keep me because He promised He will do it and He's got the power to do it. When Paul says that faith is credited to us as righteousness... Again, he doesn't mean that our faith is our righteousness or any part of our justifying righteousness. He means that faith is what, again, that's what unites you to Christ. A channel, if you will. And I know at the conclusion, sometimes we read that portion from Ephesians chapter 2 of our service. In Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And then what does he say? And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. The very saving faith that we have. God gives that to us. We don't generate that out of our own. Who causes one to differ from the other? If there's something that I can do on my behalf, I've got room for boasting because I did something that God accepted and you didn't do it. That's not salvation according to the word of God. Again, as Grant was praying... You know, you've heard that old illustration before that you're out there drowning in the ocean and God throws you the life preserver and if you want to be saved, just reach out and grab it. That's not biblical. The Bible says you're dead. <laughs> you're on the bottom of the ocean and the whales are getting ready to munch on you down there and God breathes life into you. John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to the naked Demas, the sovereign work of God's Spirit to bring spiritual life where we were spiritually dead. And part of the evidence of that being brought to life is the fact that God grants you repentance and gives you the gift of faith to turn from your sin and to place your faith and trust in Christ. That's the gospel. God has done all this on the behalf of people that were 
without power, that were weak, that could never save themselves. When God sees our faith in Christ, he sees our union with Christ. And when he sees union with Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. So faith connects us with Christ, who is our righteousness. And in that sense, faith is counted as righteousness. Because a true saving faith sees and rejoices at all that God has done for us in Christ and gives worship and praise and honor and glory to him. Paul writes in Romans 3. But now apart from the law, meaning you're not going to find your righteousness in the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe. It's crystal clear what the scripture teaches on this subject. Notice that it's God's righteousness that comes to us through faith. Faith is what unites us to God's righteousness. Faith is is not God's righteousness. You know, John Bunyan said that after his experience in the field where the truth of this imputed righteousness of Christ overtook him and it hit him so powerfully, he said he went home and he searched the scripture and he found 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by his, his, that's God's doing. Bunyan understood this and he rejoiced in it. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, not your own doing. And then he goes on, he says, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness from God and sanctification and redemption? It's all wrapped up in God. That's why we gather and worship our risen Savior. All glory to him. He has done what we could never do. And by this scripture, Bunyan writes, in Grace Abounding, he says, I saw that the man Christ Jesus is our righteousness and sanctification before God. I realize that it's not me. Here, therefore, I live for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. And if you have no peace this morning, this is where it's going to be found. Nowhere else. So when God says this morning to those that believe in Christ, I credit your faith as righteousness. Again, he doesn't mean your faith is righteousness. He means that your faith connects you to God's righteousness in Christ and you are with him. Because that's what Jesus came to do, the incarnation. To take on the form of a lowly servant, fully God and fully man. To live a perfect life and to die that would remove all our sins and fulfill for you and me a perfect righteousness this morning. And the good news is he freely offers this to the vilest of sinners. Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. Remember, he was going around killing Christians, trying to destroy the church. And this morning, if you see Christ as the true and precious Savior that he is, you will know a peace with God that passes all understanding. The truth will set you free, as the scripture claims. It'll lead you to lay down your life in the cause of Christ for the joy that is set before you. You'll learn to die to yourself and be alive in Christ. So this morning, look to Christ. 
and trust Him alone for your righteousness. You know, Paul, again in Romans 4, he he quotes David from Psalm 32. He says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And listen to this. It's one of those things, you know, I've read it probably a hundred times. It's one of those things you just overlook it and go on to the next verse. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He will never count our sin against us because the righteousness of his son has been credited to your account. So what we really have is this great exchange that's taken place in redemptive history according to God's eternal plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, that is Jesus Christ, his son, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin. He pays the penalty that we were never capable of paying except eternal separation from God. Cast out into eternal darkness. Cast into hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But not only does he do that, he imparts to us a perfect righteousness that we can dwell in his presence for eternity. You know, and this makes me think of Hebrews chapter 4, which I've given a lot of thought to this over the years. And there it says in verse 8 through 10, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And let me explain just my personal position of why I'm not a Sabbatarian. Because I believe the point that the author of Hebrews is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is making a spiritual rather than physical. He's not primarily referring to physically resting from work. Instead, he's referring to spiritually resting from working for salvation. I think that's the context and the application. And let me go to you and why I believe that. And I'm trying to persuade you this morning, if you have a different viewpoint, uh, again, we can... Enjoy the unity of Christ and discuss these things uh, coming to hopefully a position. But listen to my argument. We enter God's rest by trusting in what Jesus has already and fully accomplished on our behalf. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. That means it's finished. He's done working. (laughs) And then he says in Matthew chapter 11... Verses 28 through 30. The words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's just not from being a slave and working hard. He's not talking about that. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know, beast of burden had the yoke on them and heavy. They were work animals. 
And he says, take my yoke upon and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And now this is the key point that we often overlook. And you will find rest for your soul. He's not talking about your body. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the context there, Jesus is offering rest to all those who labor and heavy laden, which is how every person feels that tries to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. You know, specifically, to bolster my argument, Peter said it is a yoke on the neck. <laughs> Again, this, this burden that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear it. And Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it's a yoke of bondage. That's the whole point he's making between this old covenant and the new covenant. But Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So we rest in the sense of the salvation that Jesus alone provides for us. We don't have to worry and be anxious if we've done enough in order to earn God's favor and to be right with God. Because it's not about what we do. Again, some people go ballistic when I say that. But they're not, hopefully, and pray that I can do a good job of explaining it from the Scripture. But I want you to see this. Because just like a bunion, and just like Luther, this is revolutionary. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not based on our works, but on Christ's perfect finished work on each of our behalf that believe. It's not about our righteousness because we have none. It's about Jesus' righteousness that's imputed to our account. And I this morning, and hopefully you this morning, I am resting from my work. Because Jesus is my advocate. According to the word of God. He has sat down at the right hand of his father in glory. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Because my judge, whom I will face, is also the one who has justified me. I rest in that and that alone. And if I'm wrong, there's no hope for anybody out here this morning. Because whatever you do, it's not enough. If you're going to live by the works of the law. Like I, I try to use that illustration. You know, we could be on the Santa Monica Pier out there in Los Angeles and we could, you know, who can jump the furthest to Honolulu and you might be able to jump twice as far as I can, but guess what? You're so far short of Honolulu. And that's why if you want to live a life based on the law, you're going to be a miserable person. You know, and some people say, this is so contrary. (laughs) To what I've lived my life and what I hear and what my culture and my way of life has taught me. Because my culture and everything that tells me i got to work for my reward. You know, I go to work and they pay me for what I do for them. For the goods or services that I produce. And that's part of the flesh. And that's what we're trying to put to death. That idea because it's kind of ingrained in us. We're performance based. Whether it's athletics or sales productions or whatever. Well, the Jews were thinking the same thing at the time. 
And now, John 26, or excuse me, John 6, verse 28 and 29. Again, this is one of the things you can overlook. Jesus was asked by the people, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Tell us what, what kind of work i got to do, Jesus. And Jesus answered and He said to them, Here you go, for those that want to know and those that have the propensity and desire to want to work. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. That's your work. Belief, faith, trust. You know, those people were convinced that they had to work to earn God's favor and salvation. And Jesus was basically telling them, and he's telling you today, abandon confidence in your own efforts and trust wholly in him and the work that he came to accomplish. That's why we rejoice. That's why we partake of the Lord's table to remind us of that. Their work is to believe (laughs) that their work will never save them. (laughs) Apply that in your life when you leave and walk out the door. Believe that your work's never going to be enough work to save you. You need something outside of yourself. Only Christ's finished work can do that for you. That's what true saving faith is. It's, our faith is not something that prompts God to be gracious to us. <laughs> it's in spite of who we are. It's in spite that we don't have faith. It's in spite that we're in enmity with God. But God shows mercy. He's a merciful God. Jesus said, I will cast out none who come unto me. Anybody who will repent and turn to faith in Christ will be saved. Faith is the God-given gift, the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ and all his righteousness has been imputed to us. Christ is my righteousness and he's your righteousness. There is no other. And remember this, your righteousness is in heaven right now. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change even though you and I change daily. And that it doesn't get any better when your faith is strong, and it doesn't get any worse when your faith is weak. Because it's perfect and it's finished. It's Christ. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. And I encourage you this morning to look away from yourself. Because I truly believe that Christ is my Sabbath. I'm resting in Him. I've ceased from works. And you must rest in Him today and every day. And pray by God's grace and the power of His Spirit that we could each encourage one another to do that.